Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Calling all the clans together, calling all the clans together, calling all the clans together, brothers come around. Calling south and north together, calling west and east together, calling all the clans together, brother come around. A bit of sleeping, can't afford to be a bit of sleeping. Can't you see the reaper reaping? Brothers come around. Never mind the children flying, never mind the dead and dying. Can't you hear the piper piping? Brother, come around. Come running fast, come running hard, running for all you work. Come running through the gates of hell itself and let the devil take the hindmost. We're gonna be calling all the clan together, calling all the clan together, calling all the clan together, brothers come running. Hello again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground. Thank you for uh, joining me tonight at Might is Right, uh, your host, Urban Jungle Girl. And today is Moon Day, uh, March the 9th. I had to think about that. Between the live podcast, Might is Right streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Moon Day is the Valkyrie Underground with me. Tuesday is Berserker Bastion with Ruthless Rob. Thursday is the Might is Right Power Hour with Bill Rise. As always, if you wish to chat during the show, uh, please use the chat room at mightisright.net. Anyway, uh, tonight uh, the show is going to be, and I think this is going to be a two-part show, uh, it's The Jewish Utopia. It's a, um, a book that it's actually more like a pamphlet that I came across some years ago. It's an important piece. So I thought I would uh, present this, and as you know, I like to read. <laughs> uh, this is an educational uh, kind of show. So I'm uh, going to go right into it, and uh, this is the ultimate world order as pictured in the Jewish Utopia, written by Robert H. Williams. All right. If the communists think they are going to conquer all the nations and set up a world government under a dictator of their own choosing, they may be in for a surprise. 
for their parent, the sect, which originally launched the communist movement as an offshoot to accomplish a specific and temporary purpose, has plans for an ultimate world order of its own, and this sect, commonly called Zionist, now vastly overshadows the much cruder communist machine in skill, finance, organization, and influence. The communist plan for rubbing out all national, religious, cultural, and racial lines and submerging the world into a formless, characterless chaos for easy domination is grandiose enough. To say that there is still another more grandiose plan beyond that for which the communist machine was set up is indeed to challenge the credulity of most of us, especially of us Anglo-Saxons, who are too busy with our humdrum routines to pull the propaganda curtain aside and see the giant hiding there. Not many years after I began studying the communist movement, trying to understand it, I noticed a hint that communism was not to be the ultimate world order. Heinrich Hein, the German-Jewish poet and communist youth leader of the 1830s and 1840s, friend and co-revolutionary of Karl Marx, spoke of communism as temporary. Is it not disturbing enough that a machine dedicated to liquidating all opponents, wiping out the nations as such and the best blood of the races, and blending the remnants into a faceless brown slob, is it not disturbing enough that the communist machine already enslaves nearly half of the people of the world and is armed with hydrogen bombs? If communism is only temporary, what is to be the ultimate novus order seclorum, the new order of society, if the successors to the Jewish revolutionaries Marx and Hein accomplish their aim? Who are to be the masters of the new order and what do they want to do with our children and grandchildren? It goes without saying that no man can escape concern about such a scheme if it has powerful backing. For years I have felt that somewhere there must be a master plan showing what Hein and his fellow planners had in mind for us after the fires of communism burn away the heritages of the various races and cultures, religions and nations, after communist monsters have killed out several generations of what they rightfully call, quote, the leadership personnel, end quote, all who might have the intelligence, skill, and courage to resist. But I little expected ever to have this ultimate master plan, this chapter beyond the communist manifesto in my hands. Of the hundreds of documents I have collected on activities of the Marxist revolutionaries, including originals or photostats of official government reports, intelligent releases, communist papers, Zionist organizational reports to their members, Jewish histories of revolution, biographies of their revolutionary leaders, etc. I have never seen anything comparable, for this small book sketches the general outlines of the ultimate goals hundreds of years ahead, towards which the various activities of the Zionists and their, quote, liberal dupes are wittingly or unwittingly contributing. Yet, the book was not marked secret. It was in plain English and in the library of the University of Texas. And a friend has found a copy in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., supposedly a copy, which was filed with application for copyright in 1932. 
It was a book of 118 pages plus preface, notes, and bibliography entitled The Jewish Utopia. Not a Jewish utopia, but the Jewish Utopia by Michael Higger, a university professor published by the Lord Baltimore Press in Baltimore, Maryland, 1932, and copyrighted the same year by the author. If the book was not marked secret, if it is in plain English, it is nevertheless almost safe, for it is largely couched in the esoteric language which all Jewish revolutionaries have used throughout known history, language found even in their Torah, and which Jewish writers imparted to communist literature. Their use of words which you and I take to mean one thing, but which their followers understand to mean something else, a system which our people little suspect almost guarantees the security of the document. Here at last, in the complete plan of the Zionist, in their own words, for world domination, the author speaks of, quote, the righteous, end quote, and, quote, the just, end quote. He says they shall inherit the earth. He quotes the prophets, the book of Moses, etc., who would suspect that he had political revolution and total conquest in mind? But read on, and you will find that the righteous are the Zionist Jews and such Gentiles as they may accept. All others shall perish. That is what the author says repeatedly on page after page. And note that this book is not the creation of the Jewish professor Michael Higger, he merely compiled it. It is the sum total of the prophecies, teachings, plans, and interpretations of the foremost rabbis and Jewish tribal leaders of the past 2,500 years since the time of the Oral Law and the beginning of the Babylonian Talmud, which its double standard for Jews and non-Jews and its nationalistic militant interpretations of the Torah, the books of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, there is no mistaking who is meant by, quote, the righteous, end quote. Mr. Higger says, even those Jews who fail to enter into the program of the utopia, in parentheses, which he reveals to be the same program of socialism, brotherhood, and internationalism as that of Zionists, and involving much also that is communist, in parentheses, will be denied the utopia, even the non-conforming Jews shall perish along with the rest of us. On page after page, Mr. Higger's Jewish utopia unfolds the ultimate order. Some mighty force with the ruler from the house of David on the throne is to take control of every life, every shekel's worth of property, every acre of land, every nugget and coin. No child may live, none may be born if the power objects. And the regard in which the Jewish utopia is held by the rabbinite may be surmised from the printed Texas University Library seal inside the front cover, which says the book is, quote, presented by the Kala, K-A-L-L-A-H, of Texas Rabbis, 1939, end quote, to the Abraham I. Schechter Collection, of Hebraic and Judaic of the University Library. 
I stated earlier that the book was in plain English. The fact is, it is addressed throughout to students familiar with the Talmud, the teachings of the foremost rabbis of Jewish history. It was not in the library proper, but in the Abraham I. Schechter collection, to which one may have access only by special permission, and it was not, and is not, listed in the library catalog. We shall presently see the plan in detail. We would dismiss the entire book as a daydream by an unbalanced mind, but for the facts of history, including current history, in which the socialistic man-trap has caught this and other countries and people and is steadily sucking their blood. The Jewish machine has men in the most powerful positions, protected by the cowardice of leaders who fear to be called, quote, anti-Semitic, end quote. We are paralyzed by that atom-powered little scare word, we, the children, are afraid of the dark. Apparently, a good many Jews themselves are now fearful of the impending bloodshed. I have known and do know many Jews, while the Jewish temperament is incredibly true to pattern, there are many who realize that they have found the promised land, their utopia, here in the tolerant, benevolent, rich America. And if we appeal to these, they might well join us in the fight to keep America free. Well, I wouldn't bet on that. Mr. Higger says those Jews who do not knuckle under and who are not, quote, tall and handsome, end quote, will be weeded out. Several million Russian children and many millions of adults have been beaten to death, shot or starved by the insane Marxist machine called Bolshevism or communism, and the Zionists, communists, and their foolish liberal dupes are far advanced with the Marxist socialist program in this threatened republic. Professor Higger states his aim in the first paragraph of the preface, quote, for my main problem is to reconstruct an ideal social life on earth as pictured by the rabbis of old, and quote, he adds later, quote, as ideal society among the family of nations is visualized by the prophets, although not realized as yet, will ultimately be achieved. Nations will come, nations will go. Isms have created nations. Isms will destroy nations. Capitalism has brought happiness and woes to mankind. Communism may bring its paradise and hells to mankind. Doctrines have shaped the destinies of peoples. Doctrines may bring destruction to peoples. But the millennium will come only when the nations of the earth direct their efforts toward the visions of the prophets and make junction the teachings of Amos, Isaac, and Micah. End quote. Do Professor Higger and Talmudic rabbis interpret the prophets as do the Christians? Or do they believe that the Jewish prophets of the Old Testament were trying to keep their people dedicated to the religion of conquest, trying to keep them united and moving toward political and economic domination? Let us keep the question in mind as we read. Eventually we shall find the answer. Mr. Higger continues, quote, a Jewish utopia begins where Wells leaves off. It starts with the world as the basis of the new social life. From that viewpoint, the rabbis picture first a scheme of a transvaluation of spiritual, intellectual, and material values 
and a complete spiritual transformation. Having laid this foundation of the new ideal order, the Jewish idealists proceed with the rest of their plan and complete the superstructure of their utopia. In that part of the structure, there are, to be sure, a few common elements. In the rabbinic and other utopias, as the ideals of common interest and mutual helpfulness, cooperation, supplanting competition in the new social order, the toil of industry being reduced to a minimum and thus permitting a higher cultural and intellectual life. Obviously, some catastrophic change is in store for the world. Isms will destroy nations. An ism has destroyed Russia in our lifetime. That is, a secret organization successfully promoted an ism as a device for undermining and capturing and then gradually destroying the Russian people, their culture, economy, and already to a great extent their best racial stock. From beginning to end, the Jewish utopia emphasizes that what the rabbis of the Talmud and the Old Testament were talking about was an earthly regime, not a spiritual one, but an ideal political, racial, economic, and social era from the Jewish viewpoint here on earth. And it is to be a one-world state conforming to a single ideology. Quote, Plato is chiefly concerned with what will hold the ideal city together. The rabbis, on the other hand, are mainly interested in that ideology which would hold the whole world or the universal state together, end quote. This concept of the Jewish religion as a conquering ideology, preparing the world for the Jewish-dominated military political state here on earth, is not held by all the rabbis but it is the Talmudic interpretation as the utopia shows. The author hints that his paradise will be a socialist order, for it is to begin, quote, where Wells leaves off, end quote, and H.G. Wells, a sociologist, idealized socialism. A socialist regimented world order will kill the spirit, dry up the ambitions, chain the imagination of the highly individualistic Anglo-Saxon, and his kinsmen of the Western world, and likewise his friends in Asia, the Japanese and Chinese. Higger says the term, quote, righteousness, end quote, has all but lost its meaning in the modern world, that, quote, the Jewish utopia is built upon this very term or idea of righteousness. The kingdom of God in this world will come only when suffering mankind passes through the gate of righteousness, end quote. This sounds not unlike a Christian Anglo-Saxon or other utopia. But we must ask by what standards righteousness is to be judged. The Anglo-Saxon, the Negro, the Japanese, surely would not want to be judged righteous or unrighteous according to the wishes, ambitions, or whims of a worldly Jewish authority. On the other hand, we would hardly expect ardently pro-Jewish Jews, including Talmudic rabbis, in their paradise to cede power to ardent Christians, individualistic Norsemen, who cherish their personal freedom, or the art-loving Mediterraneans, who likewise must give vent to creative yearnings and who like a leisurely, unregimented life. 
Hence, the Jewish regimenters are sure to encounter resistance. Quote, to understand the rabbinic conception of an ideal world, it will help us if we imagine a hand passing from land to land, from country to country, from the Indian Ocean to the North Pole, marking righteous or wicked on the forehead of each one of the 1,600 million inhabitants of our earthly globe. We should then be on the right road toward solving the major problems that burden so heavily the shoulders of suffering humanity. For humankind should be divided into two and only two distinct and unmistakable groups, namely righteous and wicked. To the righteous would belong all that which God's wonderful world is offering. To the wicked would belong nothing. In the future, the words of Isaiah in the language of the rabbis will be fulfilled. Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. This is the force of the prophecy of Malachi when he said, Then shall ye again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. But who is to direct the hand which marks on the forehead of each of our children and our loved ones, righteous or wicked? Who is to say who may own property and who must die of thirst and starvation? Who is to dictate such conformity? Who is to deny us our own right to choose? Notice that Professor Higger considers that the Jewish prophet Malachi used the term righteous as referring to the same persons to whom he, Higger, and the nationalistic rabbis would apply it today. Righteous according to the standards, aims, and desires of the leaders who build toward a Jewish paradise a Jewish world order. That is not the Christian interpretation of Malachi and the other prophets, Jews, though they were. The Talmudic interpretation inspires the Jewish flocks to believe that the prophets are addressing their appeals to their own people, trying to whip them into unity and consecrated devotion to the building of a Jewish world order. The Talmud, and there's an asterisk here, and so I'm going to go to the asterisk because this is important. There are two Talmuds, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud. Any reference to the Talmud means the Babylonian Talmud, unless otherwise stated, for the other is rarely used. The Talmud consists of many huge volumes, the English translation of it, from which I have many photostats showing how the Jews are free to deceive and outwit the non-Jews except where there is danger of reprisals. Now apparently is available for purchase, blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to bring that up because there are two Talmuds. So the Talmud tells the Jewish flocks that Moses was their militant conquering hero and that the Mosaic law, which says, love thy neighbor, is for the Jews only. It shows the Jewish people are not bound by any moral requirement in dealing with Gentiles. Quote, the law of Moses gave unto us as a heritage. It is heritage for us, not for them. Sanhedrin 59. Quote, ye are called men, 
but the goyim, in parentheses, Gentiles, are not men, but beasts, end quote. That's from Baba Meza, 114. These quotations are translations from the nine-volume German language edition of the Babylonian Talmud in the Library of Congress, Washington, D.C. The Talmud is a many-volume compilation of Jewish history and traditions and the teachings of the ancient rabbis. One of its most important elements consists of interpretations of the Law of Moses by rabbis over a period of centuries in legal decision after legal decision. The quotations above are from different rulings in different cases, whereas the Christian who accepts the Old Testament thinks of Moses as a great moral leader appealing to all the world. The Talmudic rabbis consider Moses a great military commander. By their interpretation, Moses kept the children of Israel in the wilderness 40 years so as to discipline his flock raise up an army and train it to a goose step. And of course, the Old Testament does say that Moses' soldiers fell on unsuspecting villagers and annihilated them, men, women, and children. The books of Moses plainly glorify this slaughter and the theft of land from unsuspecting Gentiles. And there's an asterisk, and it says, Historians now say that the Hittites whose peaceful villages were thus attacked, were a fair, blonde people, speaking a language as much like early German, that many words were identical. The Hittites, like the German, 1300 years or more B.C., also knew the secret of working iron. Read especially the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy for additional examples of how the Jewish adherents should take what they want, Quote, and we took all his cities, and we utterly destroyed them, as we did unto Sihon, S-I-H-O-N, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city, and quote Deuteronomy 3, 4 through 6. Not only Zionism, but communism, too, acquired much of its hatred from the spirit of hatred kept alive by rabbis in the ghettos of Europe and Russia. The constant repetition of, quote, mine enemies, end quote, from the old Bible, quote, and ye shall be saved from your enemies, end quote, end quote, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee, end quote. The master race concept, the zeal for conquest and self-adulation are kept alive in the ghettos from their interpretations of the Torah. Quote, and it shall come to pass that the Lord thy God will set thee high above all nations of the earth. Deuteronomy 26:19. Quote, the Lord shall establish thee a holy people. End quote. Deuteronomy 28:9. Read also in Exodus how Moses had his fellow Jews borrow jewelry and other valuables from the Egyptians the day before they slipped out of Egypt. They did not return the valuables. We may sympathize with the racial or tribal pride of the Jewish men in the wilderness when they resented the presence of a non-Jewish woman in the tent of their own brothers. But the example of bloody 
fanaticism shown when they stoned the couple to death because the woman was not Jewish is a strange example indeed to come from those who cry loudest for brotherhood and who are the first to condemn such race pride. Whatever the Christians may think of the intent of Moses, the Talmud teaches the Jews to believe that Moses was talking only to their ancestors, not to the Goyim, when he said, Love thy neighbor, thou shalt not steal, etc. The Talmud gives adequate cause for the belief among the Jews that Moses was a military leader, keeping the children of Israel in the wilderness, the figurative of 40 years, so as to train them under the brief rigid Ten Commandments, which thus would be his police code to keep them in hand. By this interpretation, Moses was indeed building an army of conquest. The Talmud thus indicates that when Moses said, Love thy neighbor as thyself, he meant, Love thy Hebrew neighbor, thou shalt not steal from thy Hebrew neighbor, etc., If this is what many Jews believe, and if the Torah is the core of their religion very well, it is their privilege to worship as they please, even if they plan thereby to annihilate us. But let us open our eyes and defend ourselves. We must not blame them if we let a small tribal group bring about our destruction. While the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 1949 edition, page 771, volume 21, says, quote, The Talmud is still the authoritative and practical guide of the great mass of the Jews. Still, not all rabbis accept the Talmud, with its glorification of secrecy and cunning and its inclination to bloodletting and conquest. Rabbi Elmer Berger, for instance, repudiates both the Talmud and the Torah. In his Partisan History of Judaism, 1952, he attacks the books of Moses as expressions of nationalistic fanaticism, only partially based on historical fact. He shows that modern Zionism springs from this ancient Zionism. And there's a... Mr. Higger leaves no doubt of his meaning in using the word, quote, righteous, end quote. The word as here used is a Kabbalistic, esoteric term. The whole substance of the text shows that the righteous are those nations and individuals who work with and for the Zionist world program. The author even explains some of his key words by direct definition. For instance, quote, At the outset, it should be pointed out that the terms redemption and salvation have a radically different connotation from that which they have in Christian theology, Jewish redemption stands for the physical liberation and freedom of Israel. For the people of Israel will attain the height of their spiritual functions and potentialities only through their attainment of material freedom and liberty, end quote. Redemption, then, for the Zionist has nothing to do with, quote, redemption from sin, nothing to do with his personal relationship with God and the hereafter. It refers to a political, military, and geographical accomplishment, the setting up of the state of Israel and the, quote, liberation and freedom, end quote, of the Jews. 
The terms liberation and freedom as used by the Zionists likewise are consistently misinterpreted by Gentiles as is the Jewish term persecution. A study of Jewish revolutions in many countries shows that the word persecution is almost universally used to mean prosecution. Even those Jewish writers who tell in detail about Jewish revolutionary and seditious activities against the government of their host country brand any punishment of the guilty Jews by courts of the land as persecution. Notice that in the three-volume history of the Jews in Russia and Poland by Simon Dubnow, one of the foremost Jewish historians, Though Dubnow relates with pride many of the subversive, violent movements launched by the Jews, he always brands their punishment as persecution. Similarly, the Jewish press and planted articles in the general press in America during the trials of the Jewish communist officials in Russia, Poland, and Hungary during the past few years have treated the trials as persecutions rather than prosecution. And the courts and Stalin were anti-Semitic. In parentheses, Stalin lived with Rosa Kaganovich, sister of his close friend, Jewish Deputy Premier Lazar Kaganovich, the real bastard, though there seems to be no record of any marriage. Quote, all the treasures and natural resources of the world will eventually come in possession of the righteous. This would be in keeping with the prophecy of Isaiah. And her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. It shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain shall be for them that dwell before the Lord, to eat their fill and for stately clothing. Similarly, the treasures of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, and valuable vessels that have been lost in the seas and ocean in the course of centuries will be raised up and turned over to the righteous. In the present era, the wicked are ordinarily rich, having many comforts of life, while the righteous are poor, missing the joys of life. But in the ideal era, the Lord will open all the treasures for the upright and the righteous will suffer. God, the creator of the world, will be happy, so to speak, only in the era to come when the world will be governed by the doings and actions of the upright. End quote. Now, we are beginning to catch broad panoramas of the Zionist utopia, the ultimate world order as longed for by Professor Higger, and the principal rabbinical teacher of 2,500 years, or teachers. Quote, All the treasures and natural resources of the world will eventually come in possession of the righteous. Since only the righteous shall own property and all the rest of us shall in fact perish, it is important to know who are to be judged righteous and who unrighteous. Which of us are to be among the chosen enjoying the kingdom of God here on earth, and which of us are to be among the hundreds of millions of human beings denied even food and water. Quote, In general, the peoples of the world will be divided into two main groups, the Israelitic 
and the non-Israelitic. The former will be righteous. They will live in accordance with the wishes of one universal God. They will be thirsty for knowledge and willing even to the point of martyrdom to spread ethical truths to the world. All the other peoples, on the other hand, will be known for their detestable practices, idolatry, and similar acts of wickedness. They will be destroyed and will disappear from earth before the ushering in of the ideal era. All these unrighteous nations will be called to judgment before they are punished and doomed. The severe sentence of their doom will be pronounced upon them only after they have been given a fair trial, when it will have become evident that their existence would hinder the advent of the ideal era. Thus, at the coming of the Messiah, when all righteous nations will pay homage to the ideal righteous leader and offer gifts to him, the wicked and corrupt nations, by realizing the approach of their doom, will bring similar presence to the Messiah. Their gifts and pretended acknowledgement of the new era will be bluntly rejected for the really wicked nations, like the wicked individuals, must disappear from earth before the ideal human society of righteous nations can be established. End quote. That makes it clear. Now we know that Unless the United States as a, and he says nation, and of course the United States is not a nation, it's a country, joins wholly in fact and in spirit in the Israeli Zionist movement meant to promote the new social order, our nation is, or again country, is doomed if the Zionists win. The Zionists will call the process of liquidating opposition, quote, social surgery, end quote. It is Israel and associated nations, the Israelitic group, those nations would help build the new social order, which are to dominate the world. The others must perish. Notice that the, quote, sin, end quote, specifically identified is that of idolatry. But Mr. Higger makes clear that all those who are spared must worship the Torah and the Israelitic God in Jerusalem. Hence, idolatry means any other religious faith. Hager and his fellow Zionists are not talking in figurative terms. They are dealing in human blood, oceans of it. Quote, Hence, Israel and the other righteous nations will combat the combined forces of the wicked, unrighteous nations under the leadership of Agog and Magog. Assembled for an attack upon the righteous nations in Palestine, near Jerusalem, the unrighteous will suffer a crushing defeat, and Zion will thenceforth remain the center of the kingdom of God. The defeat of the unrighteous will mark the annihilation of the power of the wicked, who oppose the kingdom of God and establishment of the new ideal era. Quote, This struggle will not be merely the struggle of Israel against her national enemies, but the climax of the struggle between the two general opposing camps of the righteous and the unrighteous. A saying in the name of Rab, R-A-B, 
states that the descendant of the house of David will appear as the head of the ideal era only after the whole world will have suffered for a continuous period of nine months from a wicked, corrupt government like the historical, traditionally wicked Edom, end quote. The author minces no words here. Israel and her allies are to be the victors. Israel is to become the center of the kingdom of God, implying that the world is to look on Israel as holy and worship its leader, quote, a descendant of the house of David, end quote. Webster's Dictionary defines an Edomite as one of the descendants of Asu, or Edom, the brother of Jacob. You remember the account in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, which glorifies Jacob's tricking and deceiving his half-brother, Esu, out of his birthright. Esu is always pictured in Jewish literature as the Gentile, and the name is used as the code word for the Gentile. Jacob is the code word for the Jew, and there's an asterisk here. And this printing is really small, so I'm really straining, so bear with me. An example of the use of the Jewish code words, S.U. and Jacob, is found in a sermon preached by Rabbi Leon Spitz during the Purim observances in 1946. Quoted here from the American Hebrew of March 1, 1946, quote, Let S.U. whine and wail and protest to the civilized world, and let Jacob raise his hand to fight the good fight. The anti-Semite understands but one language, and he must be dealt with on his own level. The Purim Jews stood up for their lives. American Jews, too, must come to grips with our contemporary anti-Semites. We must fill our jails with anti-Semite gangsters. We must fill our insane asylums with anti-Semitic lunatics. We must combat every alien Jew-baiter. We must harass and prosecute our Jew-baiters to the extreme limits of the laws. We must humble and shame our anti-Semitic hoodlums to such an extent that none will wish or dare to become fellow travelers. There are, of course, no laws against anti-Semitism except in the communist countries. Anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, anti-Protestantism, anti-Irish, etc. are not crimes by our laws, though Jewish and liberal members of Congress are introducing such communist-type laws every year and coming closer and closer to getting them enacted in Congress has less and less understanding of our concern for principles interfering more and more with social attitudes and relationships of individuals one to another. Notice that Hager uses the capital G for Gentile, which is the biblical use of the word, whereas the modern use rarely capitalizes it, letting the word stand as a common noun. According to the Bible and also to Webster's Dictionary, the word meant, quote, as used by the Jews, one of the non-Jewish nation or of non-Jewish faith. Back to the text. Just as it is, 
the nations who oppose or even fail to support the Zionist ambitions who are to be destroyed, so is it the individuals failing or refusing to cooperate who must disappear. Quote, Who are the wicked? What constitutes wickedness? Which is an obstruction to the establishment of the kingdom of God? No exact definition of the terms can be formulated. So far as a Jewish utopia is concerned, it is the Jewish power which is to decide which of us is, quote, bad. It is hardly likely that anyone who opposes the Zionist utopian program will be found righteous by the Jewish judgment. He would without doubt be called anti-Semitic and condemned to the non-Israelitic camp. Quote, One's external religious observances will not necessarily put one in the category of the righteous. Only those who will be observant as a result of their conviction and faithfulness will be welcome in the kingdom of God. Quote, People who maliciously cause mischief and suffering to the upright and just will be termed wicked, and the kingdom of God will not have them. Rabbinical and political organizers have often maneuvered to get some of the flock punished so as to intensify their cry of persecution. And no doubt Professor Higger was unusually persecution conscious in the year 1932 when his book was published, for Hitler was rising and the war between Hitler and the Jews already was joined. Those who do not help to build up and bring about the new era will be branded wicked on their foreheads and shall perish. As in the communist states, you will not be permitted to be neutral. You will be given bloody assignments to liquidate friends or loved ones as a test of your loyalty to the Israelitic camp and program if they win. What is their program? It calls for a king, one all-powerful one descended from the house of David. Quote, I will raise up unto David a righteous shoot, and he shall reign as king and prosper and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That the Holy One, whom all the world must worship, it is to be a man, seems evident. Quote, In the future, the Holy One, blessed be he, will arrange a chorus for the righteous in paradise. End quote. The paradise referred to throughout the utopia is, quote, a universal paradise of mankind established in this world with no reference to the future world whatever, Mr. Higger's emphasis. The author further identifies the Holy One, quote, he will sit in the center and each of the righteous will be able to point to him with his finger as it is said, and it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is your God. End quote. Numerous references in the Utopia indicate that this man-God is to be the same as the Jewish world ruler of the house of David. For instance, quote, Messiah, the ideal righteous one, will come from the east where the sun rises. He will be a descendant of the house of David. End quote. This ruler, described as the dispenser of justice, obviously is the, quote, holy one, end quote. There shall be new conditions and radical changes. 
the communists built the most privileged ruling class in history. The radical change will wipe out inheritances. There shall be a 100% inheritance tax. Quote. And, and when I'm saying quote, I should have maybe stipulated this earlier. Mr. Williams, Robert Williams, who wrote this book, The Ultimate World Order, is translating uh, the passages from the Jewish Utopia, which he found in this secret section of the Schechter uh, collection in Texas. So when I say, quote, these are the, this is from the Jewish Utopia, and then when I read unquoted materials, that's Mr. Williams. So, quote, for at present, when man dies, he leaves all for others, but in the future they shall not build and another inhabit, end quote. You will have to help bring about this state confiscation. The United States government has adopted a substantial inheritance tax, plus the graduated income tax recommended by Karl Marx, which takes as high as 91% of a man's annual earnings, amounting already almost to the total confiscation of property which Israel will require if all nations in the utopia to come after the Great War. The new order will be an international order. Israel will be the seat and center of all activities. You will have to help promote Israel and subordinate your country. Both the nations will gradually come to the realization that godliness is identical with righteousness, that God cleaves to Israel, the ideal righteous nation, the peoples of the earth will then proclaim to Israel, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Quote, the people of Israel will conquer spiritually the nations of the earth, so that Israel will be made high above all nations in praise, in name, and in glory. End quote. Thus, the eternal drive of the Jews to induce or force the rest of us, primitive slave people, to worship the Jews, by now it must be evident to the reader that in using the word righteous, the author has no reference whatsoever to morality or goodliness. The righteous by his usage simply means those who join in the Israelitic program to reorganize and dominate the world. You are moral and godly only if you help promote the Israelitic movement. President Harry Truman would be among the righteous, for he helped the state of Israel get its independence in 1948 against the urgent appeals of then-Secretary of War Forrestal, who foresaw danger in American interests if the communist Zionist center of intrigue blossomed in the strategic geographic and oil center, the Near East. In a sense, the United States would be among the chosen for it has officially helped Israel subjugate the Arabs. It makes loans to Israel, and it has allowed American citizens in violation of the United States Criminal Code to send hundreds of millions of dollars to help Israel make war on nations friendly to us. Our government also, little by little, adopts the measures of the socialistic utopian order of the, quote, righteous, but... To go on with the requirements of the program, the nations and peoples will have to accept some form of United Nations which will embrace Israel's God. Quote, the nations would first unite 
for the purpose of calling upon the name of the Lord to serve him, end quote. You guys understand why I go so crazy on Christianity? Do you get it? Jewish writers have traditionally claimed the United Nations idea as a Jewish invention, and the evidence supports their claims. Israel's premier Ben-Gurion told the Time magazine correspondent, 1948, August 16th, quote, I consider that the United Nations ideal is a Jewish ideal, end quote. The California Jewish Voice, February 23, 1951, stated that the Jewish professor Lemkin of Yale University originated the Genocide Pact and famous Jewish organizations have more recently presented him awards for his invention. The American Jewish Yearbook for 1952, Volume 53, probably in your public library, states that both the Genocide Pact and the Covenant of Human Rights were the work of the American Jewish Committee. Quote, Our work in behalf of international safeguards for human rights has progressed steadily ever since we were instrumental in having the human rights provisions incorporated in the United Nations Charter at San Francisco in 1945. In 1950, after years of intensive activity, we were able to see the first great step in the ratification of the United Nations Covenant against genocide by the requisite number of member states. To date, however, we must report the failure of the United States to associate itself with this ratification, although we have every hope that the United States will ratify. Quote, we should like here to briefly describe our activities in connection with the campaign to put across the Genocide Convention, because in so doing we would be offering an excellent illustration of the way our specialized staff departments, our lay people, and our chapters pull their skills and dovetail their efforts whenever the agency sets itself a goal on national or international levels, end quote. Like the UNESCO propaganda, which is preparing the way for a world, quote, law, end quote, the United Nations power to supersede the United States Constitution and our principles of government, the Genocide Pact and the Covenant of Human Rights contrive for special privilege status for racial, quote, minorities, end quote, at the expense of principles of law and justice, and of course at the expense of, quote, non-minority, end quote, all at the expense of the freedom and rights of the white non-Jew. Genocide is defined as the killing and harming of anyone because of his race or the killing or harming of a race, or any part of it, and the harming includes mental injury, that is, criticism or even opposition, perhaps which hampers the fanatical ambitions of some racial fragment to whom the revolutionary cause becomes holy. All nations have laws against killing anybody for any or no cause, and you can sue anybody who unjustly injures you, But the Genocide Pact would allow the defendant before a court in whatever country the self-appointed genocide administrators might decide for trial. It seems probable that the Jewish utopia will require a single language for all mankind. 
Professor Higger quotes the prophecy of Zephaniah, quote, For then will I turn to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent, end quote. Inasmuch as the prophet used the plural peoples, he obviously referred to more than just the Jewish people. The world supposedly would have to embrace the Jewish language. In our time, the communists and the Zionists have been in disagreement as to whether Yiddish or Hebrew shall be the Jewish language. Communist countries have traditionally used Yiddish as one of their official languages, the other being the language of the country to which the broadcast is beamed. The Zionists have held out for Hebrew as an official language, and they have the advantage that some of their ancient literature was in Hebrew. But in the last 20 years, the Yiddish language, a composite of German, Polish, Russian, and Hebrew, using the Hebrew alphabet, seems to have outstripped Hebrew in popular demand in Jewish schools in America. You will have to embrace the Jewish religion, Jewish culture, Jewish thought. Quote, The basis of that culture and wisdom through which God's glory will be manifest upon Israel and by light of which nations will walk will be the Torah, Israel's traditional inheritance. For the source of Israel's new life of righteousness and of divine glory will be rooted in the Torah. End quote. This confirms our earlier statement that the unpardonable sin of idolatry will consist of adhering to any religious faith other than the Jewish Torah with its, quote, holy, end quote, head in Jerusalem. We have already pointed out that the Torah consists of the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. While the entire Old Testament is Jewish, it is specifically the Torah, which most religious Jews claim as their Bible. It is the basis of much of the Talmud interpretation of how Jews should conduct themselves in their dealings with other Jews and with non-Jews. The, quote, righteous, end quote, nations and individuals will have to glorify the mosaic triumphs, conquests, deceptions, theft, and slaughter of unsuspecting Gentile villagers as the basis of their religion and culture. Even so, your grandson could not become the grand exalted ruler, not being descended from the house of David. Our grandchildren must not be permitted to know that their ancestors came from Europe or anywhere but in the, quote, holy land. Our grandchildren must be denied any knowledge of the history, struggles, and triumphs of our own people. They must assume that we all came from the tribes led by the scheming, bloody Moses of the Torah, stinking book. They must never know that their ancestors once enjoyed throughout untold ages in their tribal life, sacrosanct individual freedom under a fair and just code of laws, an elected king or chief and a representative government, out of which sprang the U.S. Constitution and much of the English common law and modern parliamentary government. So vast has been the movement of liberalism and the progressive education that even most individuals of the present generation have lost the golden thread of history. 
so valuable is it, especially in showing how far our people have been perverted against their native temperament and their once great heritage of freedom and justice, that our history must be destroyed. The Israelitic group must see that it is entirely lost. Of the Anglo-Saxons, the Angles are known to have occupied a position which is approximately southern Denmark. The Saxons, just to the south of them, for centuries before the birth of Christ. During the centuries in which the twelve tribes of Israel were a pastoral sheep-herding people, the Lombards and the great Goth tribe, which split into the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths, were their brothers and near neighbors. The Celts, apparently, had lived somewhere near the upper Rhine River a thousand years before Christ, these tribes, both the Teutonic and the Celtic branch of the Nordic or Northern race, were of fair complexion, tall, and as described by Caesar 60 years before the birth of Christ and by the historian Tacitus about a 100 years after, blonde or red-headed. Herodotus visited them and wrote about their generous nature, their orderly living, and their kindliness towards their children and kinsmen nearly 500 years before Christ. It is obvious that they had occupied northern Europe for thousands of years before the twelve tribes of Israel, a Semitic Eastern Mediterranean, or Middle Eastern people, existed as such. It was these Nordic tribes who originated the concept of freedom of the individual and constitutional government, they had a parliamentary government and courts of justice and elected tribal chiefs at the earliest stages of their known history. And there's an asterisk. Will Durant's Caesar and Christ, written in 1944, says the northern tribes pioneered the iron industry and taught it to the pre-Romans of Italy 1,000 years before Christ. Quote, in the valley of the Po, P.O., the descendants of these Terra Amricoli, <laughs> T-E-R-R-A-M-A-R-I-C-O-L-L-I, were the early inhabitants of the Italian peninsula about 1,000 years B.C., learned from Germany the use of iron. Back to the text. As long as the northern tribes rendered their loyalty to the tribe and race, they were indestructible. The only way the crafty Romans could make a dent in their armor was to propagandize among those tribes, notably the Franks, which had moved out of the north and settled among the Mediterraneans and had begun the process of outbreeding. Some of these could be recruited for warfare against the remaining northern tribes. The race was powerful till it came into contact with other racial elements and especially with the Jewish propaganda movements, which always in Greece and Rome incited one religious cult against another, one political or military faction against another, and which, quote, brotherly love and, quote, propaganda made the whites greatly speed their blending with the black and brown. The great Roman Republic apparently was built by men of Nordic ideals, probably the early Celts, but possibly also some of the Teutonic Nordics. And there's an asterisk. The textbook, The Ladder of History, says, 
quote, probably most of the early people of Italy came down from the north, and they were a fair-haired, blue-eyed people like the early Greeks, end quote. But there were not many of them, and under the Jewish propaganda before the time of Christ, and especially later, under the guise of the Christian movement, the Jewish subversion induced the big, sturdy, honest, if gullible Nordics, virtually to breed themselves out of existence, leaving an utterly unmoral, unambitious, carefree, swarthy mixture content to live on handouts from a socialist government and let the great Roman order crumble around them. When the men of vision and character dwindled to a few in number, they could no longer maintain a high level of public character among the masses, and Rome fell in a cesspool of degeneracy. The Goths and later the Lombards revived Rome, but only till they too, always few in number, softened under the degenerate, easy living of the racially chaotic Mediterranean. They made the suicidal mistake of taking slaves. The tribes were indestructible till they came into contact with other races and turned their loyalty to a geographic area and political unit rather than to tribe and race. By contrast, the freedom of the individual among the Teutonic tribes, the Jews, despite their fierce individualism and admirable skill in looking after their own interests, always managed and still manage, to bind themselves in webs of private power organizations and coercive laws. They are constantly today inventing some sort of organization to bring pressure on somebody or some government body to get something for nothing or to divide Gentiles and perhaps to provide highly paid jobs at the same time In Jerusalem, at the time of the birth of Christ, all labor and commerce was organized to the minutest detail. Every Jew was a, quote, sea lawyer, end quote, gifted in interpreting his own rights. Labor unions, a Jewish invention, dictated wages and hours and other, quote, unions, end quote, fixed prices and conditions of business conduct and laws and the rabbis stood above these laws, even regulated charity. The owner of a fig tree could not completely strip the tree, but, quote, by law, must leave some for the poor. The vast difference in Jewish law and system on the one hand, and our constitutional government, our live-and-let-live attitude, and the freedom of the individual on the other, is due to a deep abiding difference in racial temperament, attitude, and ambition, and this difference is the key to the entire world situation and to much of the history of the West for the past 2,500 years. The history of the world is a racial history. The difference in the temperament and racial or tribal ambitions of the Jews and persons of, quote, Western, end quote, or Northern racial stock is still evident for all but the blind, Yet strange to say, our people fail to see it, fail even to suspect it, and now, under decades of indoctrination by the, quote, utopian, end quote, Jewish nationalists, many of our professors in high school and college even ridicule the idea that there is any difference in the temperament, intelligence, and native endowments of the different races. Their blindness is beyond belief. 
They might as well say there is no difference in temperament, intelligence, and disposition of the big, dignified St. Bernard dogs and the nervous, barking terriers. No amount of education, no amount of good food and housing will make one out of the other. The black Africans, however happy and admirable in their own environment, do not have the disposition and capabilities to build what we call civilization. They have been free to do so for thousands of years, but still live in huts. On the other hand, set a colony of white men down in any wilderness, and they will strike out hell-bent to make over the wilderness into the burden we call civilization. The white man creates his own environment. I would be the last to say that for this, he is any better than the Negro. But if you like civilization and if you like your freedoms, you had better start waking up the blind citizens to the importance of preserving the white race. It is the Anglo-Saxon who must be undermined if the Zionists are to win. It is the Anglo-Saxon who must be softened, brainwashed, made to outbreed with dark races and leave the field to the Zionist strategists. This is not news to students of subversive movements. Our own army intelligence tried to warn us as early as 1920. The Chicago Tribune of June 19th of that year carried the intelligence release telling about the movement within a movement, a Jewish world power movement hidden inside the communist movement. Quote, the second movement aims for the establishment of a new racial domination of the world. The moving spirits in the second scheme are Jewish radicals. Within the ranks of communism is a group of this party, but it does not stop here. To its leaders, communism is only an incident. They are ready to use the Islamic revolt, hatred by the central empire of England, Japan's designs on India and commercial rivalries between America and Japan. Quote, As any movement of world revolution must be, this is primarily anti-Anglo-Saxon. The organization of the world Jewish radical movement has been perfected in almost every land, end quote. In studying the subversive movements of our time, it is impossible to make headway without taking into account race, temperament, and racial ambitions and disposition. Shintoism was Japanese. It grew out of a religious belief, but it just suited the Japanese temperament. Communism sprang out of the Jewish Kabbalism, Jewish secretive organizing. We of open lie detector faces of European stock more or less honest and much more gullible, we could never invent a countrywide secret movement, let alone a worldwide one. We are not especially interested in trying to regiment people and trying to undermine, deceive, and destroy other races, nations, and religions. We do not want to be bothered with the tensions necessary to conduct secretive, murderous, underground activities. And because we are more or less honest and generally incapable of secret cunning and scheming on a sustained and organized scale, we are sitting ducks for those who do conduct such operations. Our strength is our temperament. Nordics in their own environment can get along with hardly any laws 
and law enforcement bodies. But our temperament also is our weakness, for we can be snared into wars and suicidal movements without ever suspecting the existence of a trap. The native honesty and suicidal naivete of our ancestors was such that they considered it mean and low to use surprise or stratagems or to win by unfair or cunning devices. In 102 BC, when 300,000 Teutons met Roman legion and naively asked them to state the time and place to do battle, the crafty Romans set a trap and destroyed them, men, women, and children, many of the women committing suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. The same nature which prescribed the temperament of each separate race also provided a physiognomy to match. The Oriental has heavy lids with slits for his dark, opaque eyes. His skin is darker and heavy. He is poker-faced. It is easy for him to deceive, and naturally he is inclined to make use of the talents and facilities with which nature equipped him. We, of thin, fair skin and light, wide, open eyes, rarely can deceive or for long our faces are lie detectors. We are so smug, so accustomed to security, success and frankness that we do not perceive that certain aliens moving in among us are utterly different. We are thus at a tragic disadvantage in the psychological war directed against us from behind the alien masks. The big dignified Nordic of generous nature, courage, energy, and resourcefulness. The man who has brought freedom to so much of the world, the natural leader who blazed trails and built his new world. This remarkable man is fast disappearing. His face is degenerating under the impact of perverse propaganda and is steadily breeding downward, not only within itself, but with the less gifted, less ambitious races. The entire white race is doomed, in fact, unless very soon its ministers, teachers, and political officials quit trying to give it away and begin fighting for its survival. And there's an asterisk here. Edwin A. Embry, head of the $30 million Julius Rosenwald Foundation, all of which was spent in communist propaganda inciting the Negroes against the white race, was reported in the Afro-American of June 10, 1944, as having told the National Conference of Social Work in Cleveland, quote, For 300 years, white men of Western Europe and North America have ruled the world, but the white man of the Western world is being offered his last chance for equal status in the world society. For this violence by certain incited Negroes against their white benefactors, we can thank that American Jewish Committee, which told its members in its annual report titled, quote, American Jewish Committee Budget 1953, end quote, that the AJC, or the American Jewish Committee, was virtually the source and the overall guiding authority behind the race agitation the so-called, quote, civil rights, and quote, revolution, and all related activities. And I'm going to skip the rest because it's just too small for me to read. So uh, back to the text. While there remain millions of Nordic families 
in our country, and we are perhaps 65% Nordic as a whole. Nevertheless, we are no longer Nordic tribes. Our problem now is the problem of the whole white race. The Nordics are rapidly mixing with the other too often charming but softer branches of the white race. Our problem is now white unity for common survival. It is the white race which invents and makes the weapons of mass destruction. Even Russia under communism has to depend on white scientists, industrialists, and generals. It is the white race which will commit suicide with its own weapons unless its leaders change their course. If the white race will wake up to its situation and realize its power, if it will develop a common bond of understanding, the world wars cannot recur. The whole world will have peace. We need to understand only a few basic, simple fundamentals. One, that the world revolution is in both its communistic and Zionist phases, is destroying the white race. Two, that each member of any and every race has a right and a duty to love and protect his own, not because his race is better than any other, but because it is his, just as he loves his mother, because she is his. If we are to accept the Torah, as our ancestral history and our religion, as the Zionist utopians demand, then it is necessary that all other history disappear from the schools and libraries of the earth. This could explain why the Jewish revolutionary organizations and their, quote, liberal dupes are so ardent in promoting, quote, progressive education, end quote, the race-mixing teachers, workshops, quote, unquote, etc., in parentheses, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith in its bulletins has claimed authorship of the teacher's summer workshops, which are indoctrination courses in progressive education, racial integration, and socialist and internationalist concepts. The landmarks of the world Jewish revolution, which one must promote to be, quote, righteous, end quote, these summer workshops, now in scores or hundreds of public school systems, are patterned after the communist workshops and use the same name of the Revolution of 1848. While Jewish nationalists or Zionists launched communism as a temporary destructive front, its objective is not exactly the same as that of Zionism. Communism mixes all the races, whereas the Zionists would destroy or Judaize only the religion of the non-Jews and destroy the nations and races of non-Jews while building a seven strata racial hierarchy among their own people, always with the sevens, these people, firing them with such fanaticism that they will not substantially accept their own race-mixing propaganda driving them to build a Jewish nation, which will be at the seat of power. The communists want a communist world, the Zionists a Jewish world. As the Zionists gain power, the fact that the communists are suckers becomes increasingly evident, for they destroy the resistance of the nations and races while Zionism takes over. If Zionism wins, it must destroy its communist, illegitimate child. 
The author says on page 29, for the, quote, ideal civilization to take root, quote, one nation would have to establish its life on a utopian foundation, thereby leading the way for the rest of the world to follow its example. The model ideal state comprising a group of righteous individuals and living an ideal life will gradually spread its its teachings and influence from nation to nation throughout the world. The kingdom of God will then become a fact. End quote. No, another quote. Israel is the only nation that is suited for this purpose. What Tennyson has said of the human race may well be said of the ideal Israel. We are the ancients of the earth, and in the morning of the times, the kingdom of God will come only through an ideal Israel. End quote. The author emphasizes the exalted position which Israel is to hold after the Holocaust. Quote, Isaac's prophecy will then be realized, and their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord has blessed. Israel will thus become a light, a symbol of the ideal life for the nations, so that in the words of Isaiah, the nations shall walk at Israel's light and kings at the brightness of Israel's rising. End quote. Quote, the people of Israel will thus conquer spiritually the nations of the earth, so that Israel will be made high above the nations in praise, in name, and in glory. The spiritual conquest of the world by psychological warfare in which the Jews are past masters ought to be comparatively easy after the communist monster has ground up the races and nations, leaving only a dull, characterless, morally weak, homogenized mixture a shorn-like, bleating-alike human flock, shorn of traditions and moral standards to anchor, shorn of the memory of a better life which was once an ancestral heritage, and shorn of the courage and character to fight for freedom and economic well-being. Communism, by its very nature, hating the capable, successful individuals, is self-destructive, but it destroys the race as it destroys itself. It drags the world down with it like a fire which burns itself out but leaves only a dead embers. By what steps will Israel become a dominant power and how will the Jews in Israel enjoy the happy era? The author already has told us that there would be a bloody Armageddon which would break the strength of the, quote, unrighteous, end quote, nations, those who resist the Jewish revolution. But after that, the Jews themselves must accept the most exacting regimentation if they are to make the surviving non-Jews look on them as holy. Quote, Before the nations of the world recognize Israel as the ideal people, Israel will have to undergo a spiritual development. The Jew will have to be prepared to lead the world to righteousness for it will be a serious and daring challenge to Israel, a challenge in which the fate of humanity will be involved. First step will be the adjustment of Israel's everyday life to the principles of truth, justice, and righteousness, as understood in the ideology of the living universal God. These principles will not be merely blank and empty phrases as employed by modern professional preachers. 
They will actually function in the relationships between Jew and Jew. Then shall the nations bless themselves by God, and in God shall they glorify. End quote. Here we must suppose that the words truth and justice mean truth and justice, for here the author is talking about relationship, quote, between Jew and Jew, end quote. This is precisely what the Talmud teaches, a Jew must play fair with his fellow Jew. As for the non-Jews, by Talmudic standards, anything goes that will not bring reprisals on the Jews. To be fair with the author, I searched his utopia from cover to cover, trying to find any requirements that the righteous Jews also exercise truth and justice toward non-Jews. Nowhere in the book did I find a hint of any such requirement. Throughout, the book calls for, quote, righteousness on the part of all people, conformity by all of us to the Jewish program, but nowhere is the obligation of righteousness or fair play reciprocal. Obviously, then we must conclude that the strict regimentation which the Jews in the future Israel must undergo is for the sake of appearances among the rest of us or any of our offspring who survive. They must put on the appearance of, quote, and holy people, end quote. The second step, quote, an ideal Israel will have to be a holy people. Their holiness will be so apparent that everyone will call them the holy ones, end quote. The author adds, quote, the main concern of the ideal people will be how to utilize God's goodness, which is stored up for them. As a result of the abundance which God will have bestowed upon the people, it will be possible for them to devote themselves exclusively to their completest moral and spiritual development, end quote. And then, quote, third, Israel will become a nation of prophets, Nature itself will cooperate with the nation of prophets in prophesying an optimistic future for mankind. It will be an optimism symbolized by sweet wine dropped down by mountains. By comparison with his tribal fanaticism, the late Hitler's efforts to revive Nordic race pride looks like a kindergarten game. Quote, fourth, Israel will become a nation of scholars. Israel will experience a spiritual and cultural renaissance resembling the revelation they experienced in receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai. Wisdom and learning will instill new life into the people. The basis of that culture and wisdom through which God's glory will be manifest upon Israel and by light of which nations will walk will be the Torah Israel's traditional inheritance. For the source of Israel's new life of righteousness and of divine glory will be rooted in the Torah, end quote. Years ago I came to realize that the Jews place on human intelligence the very highest valuation. For this good sense they should have the admiration of all of us. They are a gifted people in many respects, partly because they cultivate mental activity. They say their religion itself stimulates logical processes and challenges them intellectually, presumably because it challenges and incites them to put forth strenuous effort on their own behalf. Christianity, unfortunately, does not fire our people with the necessity of self-preservation or success, but as often interpreted, seems to imply that we should humble and humiliate and debase ourselves 
before other races. It implies that we should be satisfied with our lot regardless. As often interpreted, Christianity does not stimulate us to learn the great principles of nature and the universe to strive for accomplishment. It will take a powerful, vigorous, and proud white race to stand united in sufficient strength to resist the Jewish movement, which still has the inspiration and power of tribal unity. The Jewish planners have only to keep on preaching righteousness, that is, brotherhood and equality among us, unless we wake up and reverse our field, we will presently so debase ourselves, so degenerate mentally and morally, as practically to give them the victory by default. Quote, in the ideal era, Israel will be peacefully united and no enemy of any kind will exist among them. Similarly, the leaders in Israel will be peacefully united in their responsible task of directing the fate of the historic people. Israel will consequently become the instrument of peace among the nations of the world. End quote. Peace, that is, among the nations will embrace the Jewish religion and order and acknowledge the ruler from the house of David. But in fact, the fanatical dreamers may find that the only way they can hold their grip on the world, their balance of power, is to keep factions constantly at war with one another. Quote, Israel will be a living testimony to the absolute unity of God. Consequently, in the ideal era, there will be no people who will believe in the division of the Godhead into two or more parts or persons. Only those people who believe in one God will survive in the ideal world, end quote. This repetition of the intent or desire to destroy everyone who fails or refuses to accept the Jewish religion and New World Order emphasizes the incredible bloodthirstiness of the Jewish revolutionaries. It is simply beyond the temperament of the peace-loving, live-and-let-live Gentile to comprehend such craving for power over others. Quote, the main justification for Israel's distinctiveness and separation from all other nations will be that she identifies herself with the living and everlasting God, the Holy One of Israel, that she preserves the memory of her historic experiences of receiving the Torah, and that she gives the Torah's ethical teachings to mankind. And I think that I'm going to stop right here, and this is about midpoint, I think. Oh, yep, it is. And uh, this is going to be a two-parter. So, oh, I hope I didn't bore you. I always worry when I do these kind of readings. Okay. Well, I'm going to uh, thank you for listening. And uh, remember, it's all about the 14 words. I bid you adieu. Long live Tay-Sax and Sickle Cell. Free Matt Hale and Rahoa. And I'm going to play you. This is George Winston, something called C. Uh, he's an artist I'm fond of.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.